Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello and welcome to another clinical challenge episode of Behind the Knife from your burn surgery subspecialty team at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. Today, we're excited to discuss several cases highlighting global burn surgery challenges and innovations. I'm Paul Herman, third-year general surgery resident at the University of Washington General Surgery Residency, and I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Barclay Stewart, trauma, burn, and critical care surgery faculty with extensive clinical and research experience in global injury and burn care, and one of his colleagues in Nepal, Dr. Manish Yadav. Dr. Stewart, will you introduce Manish and share how you begin working together? Sure. Thanks, Paul. I'm very excited to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, we have a privilege to share this time with Dr. Manish Yadetta. He's a dear friend and plastic and burn surgeon at Kirtipur Hospital in Nepal. And Nepal Clapton Burn Center is the largest burn care facility in Nepal, which is a country with an extremely high burden of burning degrees for reasons that we're going to touch on shortly. So, Manish, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for the invitation. Okay, let's jump right in. Can you tell us about your first case? This is a four-year-old male child with about 40% burn and suspected illness and injury during warming at a far eastern village in Nepal, which is about 380 kilometers away, and it almost takes uh, over 30 hours to reach the capital. This kid arrived at our hospital 36 hours later, and interestingly enough, there are several pre-hospital issues. Whenever a burn happens, there is no way to activate a pre-hospital or emergency care system. And then this kid was taken to a primary health care. There, pretty much nothing was done. And then he was referred to the regional hospital. There, they just did the dressing of the wound. And then they referred to a hospital. Now, you see, there is a mistrust and fear of the local medical system. And there is often a delay in care. And when the patient is being transferred to a central hospital like ours, there is no one to take care during transport. They're just accompanied by the relative and the ambulance driver. There's no medical personnel accompanying the patient. And throughout this transport, the patient doesn't receive any fluid, no feeds, and is quite cold and clammy when the patient arrives at our hospital. Wow. That is a stark difference from our pre-hospital care than Seattle, Washington, where often our patients that are very ill have had amazing care provided in the pre-hospital setting. They might come in intubated already, and they have fluids running, have good IV access. That sounds like a huge challenge. I and our listeners have so much to learn from you, so yeah, thank you for sharing. So not all of us know much about burn epidemiology, especially global burn epidemiology. Can you tell us a little bit about how burns are distributed around the world, Dr. Stewart? Sure. Burns are a major public health problem globally, given their frequency, physical, psychosocial, and financial impacts on people, their families, their communities, and society more broadly, frankly. There are between 8 and 14 million major burn injuries each year. That's around 35,000 each day. About 75% of those are children. Just for comparison, the incidence of burn injuries is greater than of HIV and tuberculosis combined, and it approaches the incidence of all malignant neoplasms. But geographically concentrated and low- and middle-income countries, where around 90% of all the burns in the world occur. In fact, the incidence of major burn injuries seems to be decreasing in high-income countries as a result of the prevention initiatives, including the widespread use of smoke alarms, health promotion, education uh, interventions, and building and fire codes. 
unfortunately, we have very limited data from low and middle income countries regarding the true burn incidence, and the data we do have suggests that rabies continue to increase. Importantly, these injuries occur where health and trauma systems are not well planned or organized to manage these injuries. Therefore, burn injuries are common and are associated with markedly greater preventable morbidity, mortality uh, and worse functional outcomes. It's important to note that even in high-income countries, there are major disparities in brain epidemiology. People experiencing homelessness, people of low socioeconomic status, black and indigenous patients, and those with other disabilities are markedly more likely to experience injury and die from their burns than their peers. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. That's a helpful background. Dr. Yadab, can you tell us a little bit more about the individual characteristics that place people at risk of burns? Yeah, definitely, Paul. First of all, we should consider the age. The children and young people, they are most at risk. Supervision of the kids is quite challenging, particularly in low socioeconomic countries. The infants, they are most commonly injured from scalding, while around caregivers and siblings, they are cooking. Toddlers, they are newly mobile and curious and have a few innovations. The children are most likely to have a burn injury between the age of 6 and 36 months of age. In low socioeconomic countries, the food is usually cooked in an open area with open fire cooking, and this is usually at the center of the household. And then older adults are also at a higher risk, given the deterioration in dexterity, coordination, cognition, and medications, and also comorbidities. The older adults, they are at highest risk of dying in structural-related fires and being burnt while bathing or doing activities which previously they were able to manage when younger. The second one is gender. So in high-income countries, males are more than 50% likely to be injured than females, and they are more likely to have severe injuries. However, in low-middle-income countries, it's the opposite. The women are twice as likely to be injured due to dense exposure to unsafe cooking arrangements, meal, and tea and coffee preparations, and while wearing clothes, traditional garments. That's a really interesting background on what kind of individual factors increase risk and how that varies in low and middle income countries. Do you mind sharing the most common causes of burn injury in low and middle income countries? Most of the injuries are quite unintentional. In decreasing order of frequency, there are flame, scald, contact burns, electrical burn injuries, and chemical injuries. The most common flame burns, it's due to cooking. It is estimated that about 60 to 80% of all injuries occur while cooking. You know that in low middle income countries with significant poverty, cooking is often done with rudimentary arrangements like uh, with three stone, fire, and clay improvised cooking soaps, which are low to the ground and have significant flame extrusion. However, in the hilly regions where the climate is cold, warming using cooking and open burning methods, this also leads to common burn injuries. The newer liquid petroleum gas LPG cooking soaps, which promise safety, but they have a lack of standardization throughout the country and the lack of household safety education led to the rate of high burn injuries after the distribution. Other risk conditions include specific occupational hazards such as welding, utilities, concrete preparation and pouring during the preparation of roads, agriculture, and firefighting. Intestinal injuries are less common. They account to about 20-15% of burn injuries amongst children and are related to child abuse or neglect. Elder abuse is common, 
and chemical assaults on young females or house assaults with chemical injuries like acid. Thanks, Vanish. So next question I have is anybody who's been around burn care understands that burn care is very resource intensive. Patients have long hospital courses. They require serial trips to the operating room usually. And wound care at the bedside is time and labor intensive. Does burn care match burn epidemiology globally, Dr. Stewart? Sadly, no. First off, even before care is prevention. And there's been a markedly lower investment in prevention and control activities in most low-income countries, like building and fire codes, programs that disseminate smoke alarms, creation of laws regarding self-extinguishing cigarettes, policies to address energy poverty, like Manish mentioned, and then education around cooking safety in a systematic way. So because of that, burn injuries are more common. But additionally, well-organized pre-hospital and emergency care systems, which include trauma and burn care systems, have not been prioritized along other global health initiatives, such as maternal and child health, HIV and tuberculosis care, and other tropical disease control programs. This leads to delays in emergency and definitive care. Lastly, comprehensive burn care centers were very rare outside of high-income settings. The hospital that Dr. Yadiv works at uh, represents one of these and is really a shining star in Nepal. These centers require resources that are not readily available individually across the health systems in each of these countries, and therefore much less concentrated for the care of a single condition. And just to be explicit, these are resources like critical care, blood banking, state anesthesia, access to skin substitutes like allograft or other dermal templates, multidisciplinary rehabilitation. These are all needed for patients with burn injuries to have good outcomes, and these are generally unaffordable in fee-for-service health system models. As a result, the survivability of burn injuries is much lower in low-income countries because of this mismatch in epidemiology, prevention, and care. As an example, the LE50, which is the total body surface area burn in which half of patients survive, although this does vary with age, inflation, and other factors, it's generally thought to be around 70% in high-income countries, and only 25 to 35% in most low- and middle-income countries. Wow. Those disparities are striking and really highlight the need for people to hear more about this problem and for more energy and resources to be directed toward this. Do you mind telling us a little bit about global efforts to reduce them? Sure. So there have been efforts to address the disparities around global surgery, global injury, and certainly around burns. These include things like the World Bank's Disease Control Priorities Project for Essential Surgery. The One Health Organization has numerous initiatives related to emergency education and training, programming, surgical capacity building, and uh, is embarking on burn disaster management guidelines through the Emergency Medical Team Program. The G4 Alliance is an organization that works to galvanize advocacy for global surgery and has a special work group dedicated to burn injury. And then organizations like Interburnt, which is a non-governmental organization that has uh, really led the way in developing educational tools, programs, and quality improvement structures to help burn centers and people providing burn care in low- and middle-income countries. There are also many examples of local initiatives in low- and middle-income countries that include things like grassroots prevention programs, clinical champions, again, like Dr. Yadev, building burn care capacity for underserved people in their country, academic partnerships for education, development of safe early excision checklists, use of birthing centers and allograft making programs where they weren't used before, and leveraging community health workers, which is a very well-established layer of most health systems in the world for rehabilitation programming. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. So we've touched on some major differences in burn care and some of the different initiatives being used to address those disparities. 
I'm curious if there are similarities between how burn injuries are cared for across high income countries versus low and middle income countries. Can you tell us a little bit more, Dr. Yadav? First of all, it's the impact that a burn injury has on people. No matter where you are, who you are, a burn injury can change how people function. It can challenge their psychosocial health. It can disrupt their finances and create difficulties with body image and experience of stigma. Fortunately, the management principles are largely similar globally, and there are several resources from the American Burn Association, ISBI, WHO, and the Interburns to guide care of burn injuries. Dr. Stewart, do you mind just touching more on the resuscitation in this setting where there's limited pre-hospital care and there might be limited experienced staff caring for patients early on? Thanks, Paul. This is a common issue globally. Resuscitation had to be timely. It can't be delayed and also had to be accurate or performed well. This occurs particularly globally where hospitals have providers that are less experienced with burning care than they are, for instance, uh, in Kirtapur. We worked together for several years with uh, Dr. Yadav and his team with residents here at UW, uh, as well as their trainees in Nepal to develop protocols and checklists that represent what we know as best practices, but also acknowledge that there are resource differences. We've used techniques like infill resuscitation with oral rehydration solution by mouth and nasogastric tube. We've created more lenient serial assessments and goal-directed changes to resuscitation, two hourly intervals, for instance. This really reduces the burden of clinicians uh, while ensuring that patients get the changes they need to their resuscitation over time. And we also really work to empower nurses to participate in resuscitations and communicate that uh, with providers. And I'd say that all of these changes are actually quite useful techniques for us to learn, even in our regional system, where hospitals also often struggle to provide timely and accurate resuscitation. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. And tarot resuscitation is yeah, a really interesting concept, and I'm sure it's new to a lot of our listeners, so we appreciate you highlighting that. After early resuscitation to prevent the sequela of burn shock, one of the major advancements in burn care over the past decades has been an emphasis on early excision and grafting. Can you tell us a little bit more about this in general? And then maybe Dr. Yadav, you can comment on how early excision and burn care is applied in lower resource settings. Sure. Early excision is generally considered the standard of care in high-income countries for sure, and probably should be around the world. Although there are several reports, uh, particularly from low-income countries, that suggest that early excision is dangerous and increases mortality, particularly among children. So early excision and beeper burns is generally considered to be done on the first day to the first five days. It reduces the local and systemic inflammation of the injury. It improves scarring and reduces the overall cost of care both for patients and the health system itself. However, doing early excision, particularly of larger burns, requires this optimal physiology to achieve that administration of anesthesia is safe, there's the availability of blood products, and sufficient critical care if needed before, during, or after excision. Ideally, skin substitutes can be used if indicated to replace skin temporarily and prepare the wound for autografting. There's recently a published checklist for early excision that ensures that patients are well optimized, that teams and their resources are prepared, and that monitoring afterwards is done with intentionality. So Dr. Yudav, in this case, you did do early excision, but there's not as many of these skin substitutes available. Can you tell us about some of your strategies at Curtiper? We really do early excision in kids, and we often start on day two, 
we go in serial excision with about 10 to 12 percent of excision at each go and then we also use amnion because we have got a bursting center at our hospital and most of them they are obtained through cesarean section it's not through normal labor so it's also clean so we use that amnion thank you really interesting and innovative to use a birthing center and amnion as a biologic dressing and something that would otherwise be discarded, I imagine. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. We're going to move on to critical care and how critical care for burn-injured patients differs around the globe. Dr. Yudav, can you discuss the respiratory course of this patient for us? Oh, yes. This kid, as we had suspected the inlessing injury, he was intubated on arrival, and we kept him intubated on the ventilator during serial autografting, and gradually weaned him when on the fifth day, but he was extubated after that. I think it's important just to highlight a couple of key differences. Although basic airway resources and maneuvers can save many lives, the availability of mechanical ventilation and the skill to management is not common and certainly needed to really advance critical care around the world. Therefore, it's more common to encounter interventions like intubation for airway protection without use of mechanical ventilation or use of an anesthesia machine for short interval periods of time instead of a ventilator, reliance on high flow oxygen, and even non-invasive positive pressure ventilation when ventilators are not available. And although some of these might be considered not standard of care in many high-income settings, Without the use of ventilators, these are really life-saving strategies. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. Manish, I wondered for this patient if you could discuss other considerations um, when you're caring for an intubated patient, such as their nutrition. I'm curious, how did you feed this patient during this course where they were intubated? You know that in burns, nutrition is very important. And as we see, the most of the kids, they are quite in the malnourished range. And we can see they are quite underweight. And so when we get them, we have to start feeding. And in this kid, we have to start internal feeds. We know that we don't have any commercial internal feeding preparations available. So we have to prepare our own winterized food with cereals, lentils, sugar, and oil. So this is prepared in the canteen, and then we get it from there, and it's continued through the mesogastric tube. And another interesting thing about uh, nutrition is that most of the kids, we see that they have got very low vitamin D levels. In this particular kid, it was too low and he had episode of seizures with the carpal spasm and titany. And then we started him on vitamin D supplements and calcium supplements gradually we were able to extubate him safely. And then regarding internal feeding versus generalized local foods, there are considerable issues with food for sick people. But there is a very big stigma regarding NZ tubes. A large portion of people, they are also vegan. And that's quite difficult to get protein via blenderized foods because they avoid milk, eggs, and even meat. So thanks for sharing all those details on how you care for the patient in terms of pre-hospital and early resuscitation and getting them through burn shock. Once you're confident the patient is through burn shock and you're moving on to their next phases of care, I wondered if you could talk to us about rehabilitation and thinking about functional outcomes for patients. Burns that heal over a period of time are at very high risk of contraction. In our hospital, we have just one therapist for the entire hospital, so we have to use the patient's families, friends, and our nurses 
to carry out early mobilization. But when there are burns involved in the hands, we use low-cost splints and exercise programs. Complex reconstruction, which is required more commonly in low-income countries given the limitations of accurate burn care and the follow-up of such patients once they are discharged from the hospital, it's very difficult because they live in far-off places from the hospital. Thank you. So how is this 40% flame burn who required intubation, required multiple excisions? I'm curious to hear where they are now. This patient, he was in the ICU for almost a month and to the ward, I think around day 35. And by the time he was discharged, he already started having hypertrophy of the wounds. The availability of fresher garment is very limited. It's not available locally. We have to contact another guy who is quite at a distance and then we have to send the patient to him for the measurements and the preparation of a burn garment. So these patients continue to follow up with us and they require a secondary reconstruction that takes place over their lifetime. Sometimes they often require multiple serial accidents of the same contraction. But you got them through this burn and home, it sounds like. Yeah, we saved him. So this was quite a joy to see in the eyes of the mother when he was discharged. Thank you so much for sharing. Dr. Yudab, do you have another case to discuss with us? This is an elderly lady of 70 years old female with about 45% full thickness burn entirely downwards from the waist due to open cooking in a slum area in Kathmandu. On arrival, what we do is cooling up the wound for about 30 to 35 minutes with running tap water, and then we start the gestation. Thanks. Dr. Stewart, can you give us a brief overview on current trends in burn resuscitation? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think this case illustrates nicely. So the inflammation from burn injury causes intense inflammation that begins really within minutes of injury and peaks over 18 to 48 hours significantly thereafter over the next you know, hours and days. During the first one to two days of injury, the inflammation induces capillary leak, myocardial dysfunction, and vasoplegia. These have to be managed with resuscitation, usually with lactated ringers, and augmented with colloids like albumin or plasma and vasopressors and or inotropes as needed. Without timely and adequate resuscitation, burn shock almost invariably results in acute kidney injury, wound progression, and other organ dysfunction, uh, and certainly all those are associated with poor outcomes. In most low-resource settings, renal replacement therapy is not available, and therefore acute kidney injury often means death. The principal part of resuscitation is getting started early. Although progression of wounds is part of the usual pathobiology of burn wounds, it can be worsened by both under and over resuscitation. And in settings where burn surgery and rehabilitation is less available, it's imperative that we resuscitate people well to reduce their overall surgical needs. Protocols, team communication strategies, like something as basic as text threads, and empowerment of nurses and trainees to change and optimize their resuscitation generates better outcomes in all settings, including here at Harborview and in Kirkport. Thanks. That's helpful. Manish, do you mind sharing a little bit about how enteral resuscitation can uniquely meet some of these needs, or what about enteral resuscitation gets you excited? Given the example earlier, uh, the four-year-old killed with about 40% burns referred to our center from the eastern part of Nepal arrived almost 36 hours post-incident. This kid, as I said, was being transferred in an ambulance which was not accompanied by a medical personnel. So there were no nurse, there was no paramedic, and he was just brought in with his mother and an uncle and the driver. So in these cases where there is no IV fluid, so there is no IV resuscitation. So in these cases, so the enteral resuscitation will be very helpful. 
we are using the oral rehydration solution, the ORS solution, which is WHO recommended uh, for the use in diarrhea cases. So we just use that solution, which is mixed in one liter of fluid. The ORS sachet just costs 10 rupees. That's about six or seven cents. And that's also very easily available. In fact, we are doing randomized control trial with the University of Washington on the benefits of enteral versus parenteral resuscitation in patients with major burns. The benefit of this is that we don't need any IV needles and it can be administered by the patient themselves. And the most important benefit of this is that it's very difficult to over-resuscitate a patient, which is quite a problem. We don't see over-resuscitation in our setup unless the patient is admitted and administered IV fluids. We can very safely resuscitate up to 50% of total body surface area burns. However, it's always good to have IV access to augment resuscitation when needed. So the operational benefits of enteral resuscitation are clear. This would be the most expeditious way to get early resuscitation to patients that aren't being cared for by highly trained personnel in their early stages of burn shock. In addition to it being a good way to start early, are there other benefits to enteral resuscitation? Yeah, Paul. One of the additional benefits of enteral resuscitation is the improvements in gut blood flow. Better gut blood flow has been associated with ability to sustain the mucosal integrity of the intestinal lining. Uh, it preserves innate mucosal immunity and prevents pathological shifts in the gut microbiome to pathological gram-negative rods and yeasts. Together, these likely reduce bacterial byproduct and even live bacterial translocation into systemic circulation, and we know that that can reduce the risk of ARDS, sepsis, and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Additionally, as Dr. Yadav alluded to, the research partnership that we've developed together around enteral resuscitation as a starting point has not only advanced science and care for burn injuries in the resource settings, it's really a direct communication strategy for patients during resuscitation, and ultimately, verticalization generally improves care for patients, particularly when that verticalization spreads to other aspects of care, again, including safe early excision, rehabilitation strategies, and even follow-up protocols. Wow, that's super interesting. And I'm sure that we'll be hearing more about enteral resuscitation and burn care, and it's an attractive idea, and it's amazing that you all are just pushing science forward and innovating. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about those patients that do end up coming to you too late, and you aren't able to get them off their course of burn shock, and despite your best efforts, patients with severe burns are at high risk of death. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about palliative care and how that might differ based on setting. Sure. For most listeners in the United States, we know palliative care as really an interdisciplinary caregiving model that aims to optimize quality of life and mitigate suffering for people with complex terminal injuries and illnesses. Palliative care in the burn context focuses on relief of symptoms like pain and agitation and dyspnea, wound and pressure injury care, psychological support for patients, and certainly support for their families. But around the world, palliative care services are not often formalized or available, so palliative care is a function. It should be a part of a routine care for all patients with severe injuries, patients at high risk of death, when there are major escalations of care being considered, only when there are unclear goals of care, uh, when there needs to be support for bereavement or limb loss, and amputations are common and very deep uh, injuries to the extremities, uh, and certainly when there's uh, a lack of congruence between patient treatment and their goals. So, as mentioned, palliative care consultation is common in breast centers across high-income countries, but it's the functions that are important in most low- and middle-income countries. I think that the hospital in Kirtiport did a really nice job of providing that function for their patients. Uh, perhaps, Manish, you could tell us about your experience with palliative care. 
but definitely Dr. Stewart. There are several difficulties approaching palliative care in Nepal, especially in the elderly who are often comorbid. They are unfit for surgery and our LA50 is quite low with about 40% burns. It's very difficult to talk with the family and especially their expectations is that we should just do everything for everyone. And quite often the families hold clinicians personally responsible for that. So creating a palliative care space, the function and the system within the hospital that is so focused on caring for a large number of people, it's quite challenging. We are in the plan of creating a palliative space just near the ICU that is so focused on caring for a large number of morbid cases. We have a prepared checklist to address the pain, anxiety, medication, the regular dressings, and to address other symptoms. We do this so that each patient receives high-quality, dignified care, regardless of the outcome. Thank you, Dr. Yadav. This has been a, a really amazing discussion. I want to thank you both for your time and for sharing your wealth of experience in global burn surgery. It's inspiring to me to hear how your friendship and partnership has uh, led to advancements in clinical care and research in global burn surgery and how you're helping alleviate patients suffering and, and save patients with burns globally. And I'm sure this is going to inspire many other listeners. With that, I want to transition to our quick hits section. Dr. Yadav, can you share the main take-home points for our listeners? The first thing is that the burn injuries are most common globally and it remains a major cause of death and disability among children. The second thing is that we need a well-planned and organized emergency care and burn systems which can reduce preventable death and disability. The third, we need a protocolized resuscitation and the use of internal fluids to ensure patients have a chance to survive their injuries. The fourth one, thoughtful planning and checklists for critical care, safe early oxygen, adequate nutrition, and early rehabilitation. The fifth one, even though we cannot save everyone, palliative care is a function that should be provided in a culturally appropriate way for patients with grim outcomes and those with psychosocial distress. So I think probably that would be it. Thank you, Dr. Yudav. Any final words, Dr. Stewart? Thank you so much. I really do appreciate the opportunity and I hope the uh, audience can stay tuned for a future episode on the approaches for engagement in global surgery and how uh, all of us can get involved. Okay. Thank you both so much. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.